Our message is going to have to do with the letter and the spirit today. The letter mentioned multiple times in the New Testament in the spirit that we've been studying here in uh, Romans chapter 8. Again, I'm going to be um, reading from my King James Bible here. And if I... If you get stuck with a word you're not following, make a note of it, and uh, we can, uh, I can help you. I'm, I'm assuming you're just going to be following along in your Bible, which I encourage you to do. But we are going to consider what kind of difference the Scripture is intending to make for you and I. The difference between being led by the Spirit and being led by the letter is something uh, important for us to consider. Um, many people, one of the men I... Um, I worked in the same community with in, in Cambodia, and I've met Christians here in America who, who think the same. The, the letter um, that, that you are not to be led by Im- implies to some or means to some that, that we don't really need to worry about the, the details of God's rules and God's regulations. Instead, we're going to live by the Spirit. And, and that, that means to some people an actual rejection of the, the, the written commands. And instead, it's kind of a mystical uh, pursuit of a, um, a, a spiritual leading that doesn't have anything to do with the written Word of God. So it's important for us to understand um, what kind of point is being made here so that we ourselves can uh, learn better and better um, how to walk in the Spirit or how to be led by the Spirit. So Romans 8.1 said, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The gift of life and the forgiveness of eternal life is for a people who have been changed. We've talked about this numerous times. Changed from a life that is living in the flesh, a life that is natural is another way the New Testament talks about. The natural life is, is characterized by the, the fleshly characteristics which are listed off over and over again. They have to do with covetousness and idolatry and various um, sinful behaviors. But when we get to Romans 8, he's teaching us that if you've been born again, when you've been born again, there is no condemnation for you. For those who walk according to the Spirit. Those who have been born again live lives like their father. So we're going to look at this passage in John 8. Why is it that someone walks according to the Spirit? This passage in John 8 helps you understand the difference between the one who's in the Spirit and the one who's in the flesh. John chapter 8 verse 42, the Lord Jesus is in a conversation with people who, if, if we ask them, nobody knew the word Christian yet, but if we asked those men, are you a Christian? They would have said, yes, we're Christians. Like I said, that wasn't part of anybody's vocabulary there, so that wouldn't be quite the right way for you and I to ask them the question, but you know what I mean. So I'm going to begin at verse 42, John 8, 42. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able. 
to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. This is a loaded passage for you to understand the the lineage of a believer and the lineage of an unbeliever. These men that the Lord Jesus is speaking to are not believers, and he's saying the reason you don't like what I say is because of who your father is. The reason you can't hear and understand what I'm saying is because of who your father is. There's, there's a problem with their birth origination that is with these people. It's a cause and effect. In other words, he is saying to them, if God was your father, you would love me and you would love what I say and you would understand what I say. But since your father is Satan, you don't like what I say, you don't understand what I say, and you don't believe what I say. So imagine sitting there in, in, the, in Lord Jesus' congregation. He's saying, you don't understand me because you, you're Satan's seed. You're Satan's children. This is why you don't understand. This is why you don't like what you're hearing. What would that make you think? You would be ticked. You're like, how dare you judge me? How, how dare you say that I'm not a, a Christian, that I'm a follower of Satan? I mean, think of how incensed you would feel if someone was telling you this. But this is the nature of this Thing that the Lord Jesus is introducing to us in Romans chapter 8. He's not the speaker here directly. Paul, the apostle, is. But the apostles are, are ordained by the Lord Jesus and filled with the Spirit and given the words. The, the Scripture is inspired. So the Spirit of God says to you, what does the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led person do? They don't walk according to the flesh. They walk according to the Spirit. This is a, a, a phenomenon of, of what what the new birth has produced in a Christian. And so these people, obviously, who he's speaking with there in John 8, they have a totally different opinion. But his logic, his explaining to them of why they are not Christians says, you don't listen and hear and believe what I say. Do you want to know why the Lord Jesus says? Because your father is Satan. Your father is not God, the Creator. Really, a profound confrontation. Romans 7, 6. Go back to Romans 7, 6. And then we're going to look at another verse in in Romans 8. The Lord Jesus says, Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Again, by Paul's apostolic hand, God's Spirit is teaching us that Remember, in, in, in John chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, where we, we learned that you died with Christ in your baptism. When you believed in the Lord Jesus, there is a spirit baptism followed by a water baptism, your belief in Christ. You pursue the Lord in water baptism. You've died to the law, or what he said here, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. That is, the death sentence that the law has on the unbeliever is broken when we have died with Christ. 
So you've been released from that. So that, it goes on to say, we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. Your death with Christ, your escaping eternal death, is to free you to serve by the Spirit. You're to walk and to live by the Spirit is what he's saying here and not in the oldness of the letter. There's this contrast being made and it's made numerous times in the New Testament. You're not to be serving according to the letter. You're to be serving according to the Spirit. Romans 8.14 He says, As many as are led by the Spirit are sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He just... It's the the natural and normal life for the one who's been born again to be led by the one who has given him new birth. In other words, when when the Lord Jesus is preaching in John 8 and people hear him and, and believe him, it's because they've been born of God. We're seeing the similar thing here. If they've been born of God, they are going to be led by the Spirit. They are led by the Spirit. Because they are his sons. So Lord Jesus, in his teaching there, in 8, he says, you come from a devilish lineage. You're you're not God's people. This is why you refuse to hear. This is why you won't be led by me. They can't even listen to the words of God. You see that verses 43 and 44? They can't understand the Lord Jesus. Why? They're not God's. I'm sorry, I, I, I went all the way back to John 8, 43 and 44. John 8, 43 and 44, in, in, in essence, he says, why can't you understand me? You're not my people. You're Satan's people. You can't understand what I say. Why? You have the wrong father. That's why you can't understand me. But what we're learning here in this section of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is to to hear him and to believe him is to be his child. To hear him, believe him, walk with him is to be his sons and daughters. Christian controversy on, on this subject of being led by the Spirit isn't a small subject. This is a huge issue in our generation. I don't know how long it has been so, but the the charismatic movement in America has been a very powerful vein of of Christian practice since the early 1900s. In 1906, I believe, was the Azusa Street Revival, is what it was called, and and there was a quote-unquote kind of a charismatic revival began there um, in in the very, very beginning of the 20th century. But we do want to carefully think about this issue of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit so that you can, number one, see what has this Scripture indicated and taught about? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? And then when you know, you can yourself, you you can confidently walk in the Spirit. You can serve in the Spirit. You can, you can be confident that what you are doing is what the apostles actually taught and trained us to expect. And then you can engage in uh, right understanding of, of what is meant by this. Engaging in this conversation is important for us. As I mentioned earlier, there, there were these men that we just talked about who didn't believe in the afterlife. They believed in no afterlife. The Lord Jesus didn't let us slide. 
the Lord Jesus confronted it with, with the reasoning of the scriptures to teach them and to warn them, no, you need to know and understand that there is indeed life after death. This particular conflict of being led by the Spirit is answered in a, in a much different way. One of the ways that we sometimes um, sidestep engaging in questions like this, and this is a hard one, understanding this one isn't you know, one of the easiest ones, but I, I, I use this phrase many times in my younger Christian years. I would say something like, man, think of all the theologians who disagree on the answer to this question. All kinds of very smart people have dramatically different ideas of what this means. And so I kind of throw up my spiritual hands and say, I can't figure it out if those guys can't figure it out. I mean, if MacArthur and, and R.C. Sproul are debating it and, and, and they don't agree, I'm never going to figure it out. That's the, that was kind of my approach to this. But that's not, a, that's not a biblical answer to any spiritual question. If it was a biblical answer, then you would be committed to know nothing. You would just say, well, see what happens in the end. But you're actually smarter than that. And you've been given the Word of God. You've been given the Spirit of God. If you've been born again and you're to apply God's Word to these questions and learn how to answer questions like this. Are you familiar with Proverbs 25 too? This is a really cool proverb. It is the glory of God, it says, to hide a matter. Or it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. What's the next part of the verse say? Can any of you remember it? It is the glory of a king to find a matter out. It is the glory of a king to find a matter out. What does that verse say about a person who is content in their spiritual ignorance? Well, there's no glory in it. But there is great glory in seeking the Lord and digging into His Word and working on finding the answers to these great spiritual questions. I've got two more. Let me give you some, write down these references because these also apply to this question, but I'm not going to read them all. John 4, 23 and 24 is where the Lord uh, speaks with the woman on, at the well in Samaria. And he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. She's a very spiritually minded woman. And the Lord Jesus says, you don't even know who you worship. It's in John 4, 23 and 24. He says, you don't even know who you worship. And he went on to teach her. That's another passage that speaks to this subject. There's another one in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, is what it says. In other words, the Christian life is lived by your true knowledge of him and therefore implying your false knowledge of him gives you no power and no Christian life. Is it important for you to know the true things of God and his word? Absolutely it is. You must know them. We must be pursuing them. His divine power has given you all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Don't be content in your in your shallow knowledge. Don't be content in, 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 in where you're at. Keep going. Keep letting the Lord teach you and train you. Second Thessalonians 2, 7 to 10 is, uh, is the last reference that, that we could look at. 
In this passage, it describes it describes a group of people on earth in the last days who are going to be overrun by the wrath of God. This passage speaks about the judgment of God that's coming to the world against a certain group of people. They're described in this passage as those who would not love the truth. And since they wouldn't love the truth, God gives them over to a deception, is what it says. They're given over to a deception because they would not love the truth. It's not an insightful word for you and I to think about what we think is true or not true. Be lovers of truth, my friends. Love the truth. Seek the truth. And when you find the truth of God's Word confronting you, shaming you, convicting you, what you do is you say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for showing me the truth. And, and we receive it. And we, when we walk in at that passage there in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 10, it's a scary passage. So we must be truth seekers. We must be worshipers in truth. We must be people who live godly lives in the true knowledge of the Lord. It's going to ask a question or two about what it means to, to actually be a lover of the truth. And here's, so here's how we will put this. Some people will say, I know there's a, a true and a false. So what? I mean, I know it exists. I know truth exists. Okay, so there's that level of, of, of person. There's another person who says, I know it's important to know what's true. And I agree. It's important to know what's true. But if, if that's it, in other words, if this admission of its priority is something that only exists in their head, and, and for many, that's what faith means. <laughs> I acknowledge the importance of knowing the truth, but they never actually do anything to seek the truth. They don't actually seek the Lord Jesus. They don't ask the Lord Jesus, Lord, show me the error of my ways. Lord, teach me the right way. Now that's the last of, of these three ways. One is knowing it, it, it exists. Yeah, there's a truth. There's, there's another one that says, I know the truth is important. But then this, this last one is, I need to be a seeker and a lover of what's true. I need to love what's true. That, that passage in Thessalonians says they would not love the truth. They would not love the truth. What does it mean to love the truth? What does it mean to love it? Think about that. It means you want it. You desire it. You admire it. You love its preeminence over falseness. When you, when you see and find what's true, it gives you joy. To be a lover of truth is not simply to say, yeah, I know the truth is right. To be a lover of truth is to go after it. It's to be hungry for it. It's to let it be the food of your mind and your heart and your feet. So take care with your company and take care with your teachers. 
Take care with your company. Take care with your teachers. If you hang around people who are careless with truth, then you are going to learn to be careless with truth. Take care with your friends. Take care with the books you read. Take care with the stuff you listen to. Take care because your, your love of truth and your pursuit of truth is a very, very fundamental aspect of what it means to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at um, 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4 with you, me please. 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4. Timothy is a pastor. He's younger when he receives this letter. He's a pastor at the church in Ephesus. He doesn't have a, a, a co-elder at this time, so he's kind of alone in the ministry. And Paul is writing him and teaching him how to carry out his ministry as a pastor. So verse 3, 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 says, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he might be 25 years old, 30 years old, I don't know. And his first thing is, is don't let those ones I've already told you about, don't let them teach any other doctrine. That's scary. If it's your job to stop people who want to do something that they want, if it's your job and you're 25 and you've got to stop them, that's scary. He's instructed, charge them, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Don't let them teach what's wrong. In other words, you must only allow to be taught what is true. Don't let him teach another doctrine. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. There was some um, philosophy, some religious philosophy in the, in the community of the, those Ephesian Christians that was connected to these, these genealogies that... In the, in the minds and the teaching of some had an impact on their spiritual maturity, on their spiritual life. Paul doesn't go into it. He simply says, don't let the fables and these things having to do with genealogies come into the doctrines of the church. Don't let that come and ruin what you are feeding your people. That's not what they need. Don't let them be fed with that. He goes on to say it causes disputes. These cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Take care with your company and take care with your teachers. If your company is teaching, I don't know what our equivalent to endless genealogies are. Uh, Joyce gave me a cool little uh, chart on, on angelology a little earlier today. There, there are some doctrines of angels in the world around us, Christian and non-Christian alike. You go into the hospital at Willits, there's a huge old angel on the wall in the hospital there, right? Have you ever seen the picture of that angel there? People in the, in the New Age realm of our world love angels. So there's teachings about angels in our world. and So don't get caught up in, in these ideas, these secular uh, pagan ideas about angels, right? Or maybe, maybe you've—I don't know if any of you have ever debated the merits of walking under ladders, or what happens when you see a black cat. Or there are there are things that people avoid and, and think matter today. Maybe make some part of their occupying their minds. You know, that's foolishness. That's silliness. The scriptures never talked about that. 
Look at Titus 1, 10 to 14. Titus 1, 10. There are many insubordinate. So Titus is in a similar situation to Timothy, a, a younger pastor, being told there are many insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So that means there's some Jewish uh, professing converts to Christianity. That's who the, those of the circumcision are. Whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Cretans are people from the island of Crete. When I was a kid, when I would call somebody a Cretan, that just meant we thought they were stupid, but it means they're from a place. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, it says. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. This this battle for truth in the congregations is a constant battle throughout the entire New Testament. This battle for truth, denying the false things, not allowing uh, false teachers to teach, not allowing silly conversation and silly teachings to come about in the church. It's a constant battle in the New Testament. So as we think about the question of the letter and the spirit being led by the oldness of the letter, being led by the newness of the spirit, we want to have a, a biblical idea of what we're talking about here. Second Corinthians 3, 5 to 6 is a is a great way to frame and, and understand, begin working on defining what is meant here. Second Corinthians 3, 5 to 6 is this pretty well-known passage about looking at the glory of the Lord Jesus. You guys will remember this the last time um, we were speaking on this subject. So Paul is uh, explaining to them, the Corinthian Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So, He's been in a pretty regular situation of needing to defend his authority as an apostle. In other words, some people are saying Paul thinks he's big stuff. Paul makes a lot out of his being an apostle where we're apostles too, they would say to these Christians in Corinth. There are people who are kind of threatening or kind of belittling Paul's authority and, and saying, who is he to make himself to be an apostle kind of a thing. And so that's why this introduction begins this way. He's saying, I'm, I'm nothing in myself. Me being an apostle isn't me kind of giving myself a title here. My authority, my ability, my work in the work that I do as an apostle was given to me in the Lord. My authority as an apostle, my, my mouth as an authority is God's mouth, right? Verse 6, our sufficiency is from God, verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So he is now saying, my knowledge and my explanations of this place 
in, in, in redemptive history that's called the New Covenant. We, you and I are standing in the New Covenant right now. The cup that we drink is the cup of the New Covenant. He's saying, my sufficiency, my, my effectiveness, my power as this minister in the New Covenant is also from God. Look, look what it says. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay? My authority, my knowledge, my power, my, my clarity is because of the Spirit. It's, this is not of the letter. It's of the Spirit. So the children of God, those who have been born again, are all standing in this era called the New Covenant. We're standing in this reality that's called the New Covenant. I'll go into a tiny bit of detail for you there, but it's not of the letter. The two things are contrasted here, and so it's important for us to to get this contrast, to see that Paul's saying, "We're, we're now standing, my authority here is of the Spirit. It's not of the oldness of the letter. It's of the Spirit, the, the new covenant is a contract. The new covenant is, uh, another word that the New Testament uses, is a will. In other words, if, if, if I'm in Joyce's will, when does the will go into power and give to me her Honda Civic? When she dies. So the new covenant will is something that, that goes in force at the death of the testator. Who is the testator? Christ. What is, what is in his will? Eternal life, inheritance, riches. So when the Christ dies, the, the New Testament, which your, your, your Bible probably calls it from the book of Matthew, right? We could also call it the, the last will and testament. It, it, it's the new covenant. It's that the will is now in force because we've entered into the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. We're in the new covenant, not in the covenant of the letter, is what's contrasted. So the new covenant, he says in this passage, is a covenant of the Spirit. Now let me explain what covenant of the Spirit means. Romans 5, look at Romans 5. We'll look at a verse or two here in Romans 5. As you remember, in Romans 5, it says, all men were born in Adam's condemnation right Adam sinned you're born in the line of Adam and therefore you face Adam's condemnation okay that's the that's the first part of the history of man is men are in Adam in Romans chapter 5 okay those who have put their faith in Christ are declared righteous by who? God, not the law. Can, can the law see you as righteous? No, you're lawbreakers. You're children of Adam. The letter defines your lawlessness. The letter exposes your lawlessness in Adam. The letter, the law, proves your condemnation in Adam. So all of history... In Adam, from Adam until Christ, they are in 
the, the condemnation of the letter. You and I who have believed are transferred, you'll, you'll recognize this phrase, you'll recognize this concept. We are transferred from the reign of sin and death into what? What does the book of Romans teach? You are, you are removed from the reign of sin and death and placed into the reign of grace and righteousness. Okay? There are two different places in, in terms of redemptive history. In Christ, you've been moved from this side to that side. Sin and death, grace and righteousness. Look at Romans 5.17. Paul's going to say, say it more, more efficiently here. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The letter represents the rule of law and it represents the law's right to your life. The law's right to your death, if you will, that the law gets to have of a man's life. But by the blood of Christ, in the new covenant, we have entered a new agreement. If you died to the law in Christ, you have entered a new contract. There's a new agreement. There's a new covenant. What is the contract? What does it say? We live under this new rule. Look at Romans 5.21. As sin reigned in death, Here's, here's the terms of the new covenant. The old covenant, sin reigned in death. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The new covenant is a new contract. It's a new agreement. Grace might reign. The new covenant reign rules it has a rule that can give life instead of death. By what? By what? By Christ's righteousness. The new covenant can grant life because the agreement is, is that you died with Christ and you get to have Christ's righteousness by faith. The new covenant is a transplanted righteousness. Through Christ Jesus is how the 521 ends. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. See, the requirement of righteousness is still met in the new covenant. Your requirement of righteousness is still met. How is it fulfilled? Through Christ. It's how the Christian stands in the new covenant. It's a covenant of the Spirit. Covenant that was promised to God's people in the last age. 
Jeremiah 31. Look at Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, and we're also going to look at Ezekiel 11. Look at these two verses with me. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. In God's plan of redemption, God's God's knowledge of the brokenness and and, and the corruption of man's heart prophetically is seen in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. What's, what's the new covenant have? God's law in your mind. God's law in your mind. Does the new covenant delete the authority or the, 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 the truthfulness of the letter? Does the new covenant delete the truthfulness of the letter? No. He actually says he's going to put it in your mind in the new covenant. The letter is put in your mind in the new covenant. And it says, write it on their hearts. Is the letter somehow dissolved under the new covenant? No. In in other words, the law is, is still the law. The law is still righteous. The law is still holy. The law is still good. The new covenant, however, is going to write it on your mind and write it on your hearts. Keep reading. And I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, under the new covenant, God is going to take his law and apply it to his people. That's why those ones in John chapter 8, they're just so confused. And the Lord Jesus says, if, if you were my people, you would hear what I say and you would agree with me. You would love what I say. But you're, you have a different father. Look at Ezekiel eleven nineteen. There's multiple verses, but look at Ezekiel eleven nineteen. He says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. This is the new covenant. The new covenant the cup of the new covenant. The Lord Jesus inaugurates the new covenant when he shares the communion meal with his disciples. But Ezekiel writes, hundreds of years earlier, God says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to change their hearts. What does it mean to have a stony heart removed and a fleshy heart installed? It means you will feel conviction from God. It means you won't be hard and rebellious to God. It means you will be soft-hearted to God. It means you will be taught by God. It means you will love God. And when God says, you have offended me, you have done wrongly before me, when when a son's father that the son loves, when that father says to his son, you've you've done wrong, what what does that son say? Oh, Dad, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to. I didn't want to. What did, what did King David say when he's confronted in his killing of Bathsheba's husband? What does he say? Oh, Lord. God, I've done wrong. I've sinned against you, God. I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against her husband, Uriah. God puts a soft heart in the heart of his people under the new covenant. In John chapter 3, verse 5, you'll remember these these words. The Lord Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he wanted to know who God was in truth. 
And the Lord Jesus tells him in, in Nicodemus' confusion, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. You must be born in the Spirit realm. You must be given life in the Spirit realm. You must be given this fleshy heart in the Spirit. Or you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. So back in Romans 8. Back in Romans 8, verse 11. Hang with me. This is, this is some pretty serious uh, practical theology here. Hang with me. I know I'm pushing your buttons by making you sit there so long. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Who is the Spirit? Philippians 1.19 Who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? How are you led by the Spirit? Philippians 1.19 I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Who is the Spirit? It's Christ. It's God the Father. It's God the Son. There's one essence of God. There's one divine, eternal essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? It is God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means you're led by God. It means you love God. It means you hear His convicting voice. How are you led by the Spirit and not led by the letter? What, what is the contrast between oldness of letter and newness of spirit? What does that mean? What is God taught? What has God not taught? The difference between these two things is, is a lot of people follow letter. Letter is religion. Letter is raw religion. Spirit is, is, is your heart's ability to know that this letter is the Father. In other words, when, when the Lord confronts you in your lustful moment which you know is adultery according to the teaching of Christ, right? You have a lustful thought and you know that's adultery. Letter is like, oh, whatever. Spirit is, I've disobeyed God's command and not committed adultery. And my eye has led me into adultery. My, my own heart was enticed by, by, by the beauty or by the personality of this person. And I, I, I was drawn in. Oh, God, forgive me. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to be that kind of man. But I know that this sin is just in me like, like popcorn in the bottom of the hot plant, pan that's just getting ready to do its thing. Spirit isn't separate from God's words, in other words. But it's tied directly to God. Being led by the Spirit is being led by the person of God. It's because you have a personal relationship with Him. You don't want to offend Him. When you offend Him, you confess your offense to Him. 
The life lived in the Spirit is a life lived. It is lived in relationship with the Creator and the Savior who has become your Father when you put your faith in Christ the Son who grants you righteousness, grants you presence with the Holy One. It is, it's not that we throw the letter out the window, but we know that the words of faith, the words of life, faith itself is embodied in God's words. You, you can't have faith in God without His words. Does that make sense? You can't have it any other way. It is with words. And so these teachings aren't meant for you to take the word and, oh, cool, the new covenant. We have no words. We now have only spirit. We now have mysticism. We now have the the, the impulses of my, quote-unquote, spirit-filled mystical life. No. You have a person who fears God fears sinning against God because you love God and you know His rightness. You know the blessing of walking with Him and you know the potential for chastisement when you're not walking with Him. Walking and being led by the Spirit is a love of God. John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. See the connection between the person of Christ and his word? Lord Jesus preaching, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You can't separate the word from God. You can't separate them. To reject God is literally just to reject his word. John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Spirit leading isn't something other than then your love of God and your belief that His Word is His Word. One more verse, Isaiah 66, 2. Isaiah 66, 2. All those things my hand has made, and it's, it's referring to works of creation. All these things my hand has made, All those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. Who is the heart favorable to? Who, Who does the Lord look to? Who does the Lord favor? Who does the Lord love? He says, on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. How how do you separate his word from the person of God? You don't. You know God by his word. You enjoy his blessing by his word. You are offered salvation by his word. Repent and believe in the Lord. 
And those who are led by the Spirit, are the, these are the sons of God. Do you know God? Do you love God? Do you know Him and love Him in truth? Do you love His Word? Do you seek His Word? Do you consume His Word like, like bread for your stomach? His Word is what gives us eyes of faith. His, His Word is what reveals a path of faith for our lives. It's how we know Him. It's how we walk with Him. It's how we are corrected by Him. It's how we know right and wrong. Put down your, down your old ways of contentedness and, and ignorance. Take a hold of the Lord. Love to consume His words. Love His word. Let His word animate your heart and your mind. You walk with Him. Be pleasing to Him. Let's take a minute and just thank the Lord. And, and we'll end our, our Lord's Day morning. Let's pray. And Lord God, we do thank You for Your word. Oh, what a great prophet to share the words of, of Isaiah. Oh, Lord, might we, might we feel and know the, the prophet's heart to tremble at your word. May our hearts be soft, Lord. May we, may we love to be instructed by you. May we love your ways. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for our Savior, Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We will have lunch together. If you'd like to have lunch with us, you're welcome to join us. Um, we're going to do a little bit uh, more in our unit on uh, New Age religion after lunch. So if you'd like to join us for that, we'll be doing that for about an hour or so. And uh, we'll probably be doing that right at about, uh, I don't know, 1.45, 2 o'clock, I think is when we'll be um, doing our afternoon unit. So thanks for joining us today. We'll see you on Wednesday for the ladies and Thursday for the men. Okay? We'll be up here Thursday.